I had a situation where I was at the border of Russia, where the whole bus had to wait half an hour for me because I was being questioned by customs and they wouldn't let me through because it was the first time the lady had seen a Caribbean passport. Hello, hello. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with Sean Luke. Sean Luke, you look pretty chill tonight. I mean, I just got fresh out of the shower. There's no backdrop. It's completely empty. I haven't gotten to the setup of my studio yet, but I like it. It's, it's kind of serene, quiet. It feels like new beginnings. Peaceful. Peaceful. So, uh, I don't mind it that much. I think the lighting is slightly worse and which is good because I have a very big pimple right here on my nose, <laughs> which is not being, uh, lighted at the moment. So I really, really don't mind. How about yourself? How are you doing? Diego? Pretty good. I, I'd say well rested from the past two weeks. It's the second of November now and. Yeah, I think the month started kind of like a reset, if you know what I mean, like, yeah. oh, the, the month of November started and it, it felt like a clean slate, like starting from nothing again. You can speak for yourself because I, I just had one session during the conference. You had the whole conference. Yeah, we had a fun session last week as well with the previous speaker and the current speaker, Rafael and Rajib. So that was a really fun session. We will see when we can get Rafael on for an official session. But I think tonight's just going to be some quick recaps of we're at episode 43 now of Social Convos. It's been going well. We've had a talk with Jennifer as well from the, the e-podcaster and she was talking about no pot FOMO. Am I saying it right? No yeah. pot FOMO. No pot yeah, the national podcasting uh, hosting month. So. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I think I saw a Twitter thread today that you are gonna do the challenge and recycle our old I'm, episode. I'm gonna use. I'm gonna use it to to try to do things that I've been wanting to do for a while. But I've see. Here's the thing about starting over, starting new. I'm not gonna rush it. I'm gonna. I want to be prepared, and I think that's one of the things with content as well. I mean, it's a pretty big accomplishment that we are uh, at episode 43. That's first of all. Just the commitment to have 43 episodes out in a year. I don't think I ever created something, a show or a format before both the Blue show and Social Confos where we went on for such a long stretch. So I think that's something we should celebrate. And, but also it, it kind of gives an idea really where we want to go. So I think for next year, it, it will be much more be about putting out the content that we really want to versus the content and just being committed to it. Because I think being committed is the most important thing that it's really yeah. something that is part of your life. And I mean, I let go of other things in my life just to, to be able to do social content. How, how does it feel? Cause you've done challenges over the years and I saw you started another 30 day challenge with the group, but you've done a lot of challenges 30 day, like for habits, for creating content, but how does this 
you said, let's celebrate this accomplishments period with the Lucky D show and social convos. We started in January. Lucky D goes further back than that to be almost at the end, like month 11 of 2021. How does that feel for you? I think I, I, I'm not optimizing it enough. I think that's one of the things that I'm, I just asked you today about like the RSS feed, because I know show, saw that Facebook has an option to kind of list your whole podcast. Oh, does it now? Yeah. That's so, true. so these are kind yeah, of, we'll, not, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. yeah so like the I, back there. I think those things are like right now we're so much in the, in the venue of creating is basically creating and documenting over kind of promoting and exposing. And like too much in the space is being commercialized. It's like, what are you doing it for? Why are you doing this? And we kind of discussed that we really wanted to see where we wanted to go with this podcast. And I think it's just finding shape, like really just finding shape. I don't think we're even there yet. We're kind of still in a beta phase of, of social confos, but the experience, the amount of experience we now have with guests, we can really go out like in the next couple of weeks and start planning for next year and saying like, okay, this is what we want. This is what we've learned so far. Because I think if you would say like beforehand, when you start a podcast and you're going to be like, I want to have this in my podcast and I want to do that. And I want to go that route. And I want to have this function and that function, you kind of, you kind of blow up after 10 episodes. Like it, you can't hold on to it because it's asking that much of attention. And I'm not sure if you feel the same way that because of the format we are doing, because we stripped it all down, it's easier for us to do it every week. But at the same time, doing it every week is kind of taking away from perfecting and putting a better quality as well. So I think that would be interesting to, to ask you how you've experienced yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I get where you're coming from. Both of us, we committed from the beginning. We show up every Tuesday, 9 PM and experimented with the time as well for other guests. But beside that fact, I think in the beginning, the, the first few months, we did improve on quality over each episode, but as time went on, and I think this is just natural progression of, you know, creating because you said it, committing to something this long. It says something about you and, you know, showing up every time. So I think having that down now going into next year makes it a step easier because we've gained a lot of experience over this. And I myself, personally, we've been slacking off the, the past few months, but beside that fact, I think it, it was needed as well. It gives us a, a moment to reflect. But you have these ebbs and flows in a creation process and you hit the walls and sometimes you just need to reset, but all the systems we built along the way, they're still there. They are still there. And I think that's where some value lies in, you know, making this truly long-term. I mean, and what, what people don't understand, like we haven't even really utilized yeah, we haven't. we haven't. We haven't. We've just gone out there and created 40 plus episodes without really utilize, without taking care of ourselves. If, if I look at some of the episodes, yeah. it's a month worth of content. If you would put it in the web 2.0 traditional commercializing branding format, 
it's a month worth of content that any, you know, any company or any company aligned in our, in that topic or in that space would be able to use. So yeah, with that being said, it, it is a mine and we've kind of made it very low barrier to entry for us, but also to make it easy to archive all this content. So the system we built, you know, archiving it to YouTube directly, downloading the files and just going through it, you know, highlighting some automatically making some snippets, at least one, but highlighting the, the sections that were hot so that if a year from now we would go back to it, we could easily, you know, search index it and find something to create uh, some content. I, I, I'm laughing right now. Let's welcome the, the let's, yeah, let's, let's welcome the guys. So Greg, it's been a while for you. Welcome to No Shape November. Well, November has a lot of things, doesn't it? it it's like the national challenge mark. Like exactly. Everybody has a challenge. So, so what challenge are you doing? Let's, let's quickly jump into this. I mean, No Shave November has never been a kind of a thing for me. I mean, I can, I can grow a beard properly. So for me, it will be nothing. And I mean, it's not going to happen. So, but how about you? What, what challenge? I, I actually haven't thought of any challenge to do yet. If I had to think of something on the spot, it's getting back to working out. I've, I've been slacking off a lot. Like, I think it happened. When I started from when they did the interior for long periods of time, so you have that gap. And once you repeat that two, three times, you lose the momentum. So it becomes a new habit of not doing it. But in the interior, you can still do your push-ups. Then. You, you can still do it, but uh, some factors differ because I, I built, uh, if you're read Atomic Habits, I built stacked systems. Like I have this specific bottle filled with uh, a drink, specific drink placed in the refrigerator every day. I have an exact location. So these are stacked conditions that have to be met to be able to execute it. And that keeps me in the habit. Oh, okay. So I, I need to restock on some of those so things. You need, but now, you know, like if I'm going to the interior, I'm going to be out of the city. I need yeah. to have this prep as well. Okay. That's interesting. So the challenge that I'm doing this year is the first. Yeah, Kevin says it either. I, I could start uh, a push-up challenge yeah, again. Of course. I did it last year. So hey, That's a good uh, if, if you're a game, well, let's do it. Yeah. There we go. So, so for me, I'm challenged. The challenge that I'm getting into is helping with a household challenge. So I'm starting off with daily washing clothes. So yesterday and today, I've done my part. I still have to hang the clothes for today. They're, they're already waiting for me after uh, our social convos is done. But basically I'm starting there. So if I'm washing clothes every day, I mean, I'm assuming after around 10 days, the larger basket will be empty. So there, all the laundry will be done. But I'm starting off with that. And once I get to that part that I really feel like I've conditioned myself doing it every day, I will start looking at other things around the house, making sure that they happen as well. So that's one of the commitments, which is kind of more a personal commitment than a business commitment because the business commitments, I'm not too worried about those. The content creation commitments, I'm going to have to do differently because I've already realized that I need a team for that. For me personally, to just put out content myself, it's not going to last because there's going to be days like today where clients that have been waiting for like three, three weeks for us to pitch a certain campaign because we were too busy. 
I mean, I can't let them win any longer. So you just have to pitch concepts and campaigns and client work, which has been due to the conference as well. And also we are getting like a lot of requests for new clients in as well. So for me, content creations, I can't do it on my own alone because either I have to schedule it way ahead or I run into the fact that I just have certain days that I, I don't have any time to keep my rhythm going. And this is also killing me for crypto and NFT and those kind of commitments as well. I mean, I'm in fantasy sports leagues that some of the fantasy sports leagues that I'm in, I haven't watched my team for like, since we've started. So it's like, I just don't, I think there are things that are more important. And one of the things that's really important and I don't commit to quite enough is helping at home. So I decided like this, this month, I'm just going to focus on how can I be more helpful at home as, as a dad, as a husband. And once you get that into tune, I think other things will start going easier as well. I, I've seen your schedule. You have it way fuller than me, uh, to put it that way, but to each their own. And I, I think we both have to find, you know, our own ways to navigate it. So. I'm curious to see how after a year, how it, it works out with, you know, the, the personal assistant and everything, how that's going since you found your jam, but quickly going through the comments. Yeah, that, that was it for the challenges. So you, you mentioned that on Facebook, we can put an RSS feed. So you should show me yeah, that. I'm, I'm going to show you guys, I'm going to test it first. And then I'm yeah. going to show you guys, and maybe in a future podcast, we'll discuss it as well. Other Gregory, welcome back looking good boys uh did our video and sound check so what's the most interesting piece of audience feedback we've gotten thus far one thing for me at least is i'm surprised as to how i randomly meet some people sometimes and especially at the you know the, the bottles when i actually go outside the house and you hear people yeah i listened to the episode so what surprised me is that people actually listen to the full episodes and you know found something very interesting about it. And it, it's, I'm starting to hear that more. So that's kind of a realization that huh, this is actually going somewhere. I actually had, I think it was yesterday, Odette contacted me as well for, did they have a show, right? This few time with Supreme, I think. So did they had a short interview with me? Uh, not sure when they're going to publish that, but yeah, I, I was surprised to learn about how she heard about it. Uh, aside from Devin being on that show as well. So that, that's kind of really cool to see how people slowly learn about it. Th that's one thing for me, at least. I don't know if you got anything that sticks out. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned it because I have certain occasions as well that I, it comes from like unexpected places that say, well, yeah, I, yeah, I heard un unexpected. I think that's the word. I think, and that's also one of the things that what people don't realize about creating content. So I think there's two things that are important for a show in general, aside from the general dynamic between the host, the topics being discussed. And uh, one of them is like your guests. So like due to the certain guests that you bring in, uh, you get a certain attention from a certain audience as well. And so we kind of have like the people that are commenting now, most of them, especially when they con con they comment through YouTube. You kind of know already that they are more familiar with the show. They're listening more often. And that kind of also gives you an idea of the people that really value the content, but also value being involved. So I think that's also very important 
that at a certain point, we've reached a, couple, a group of maybe 10 to 20 people that tune into this show. They don't tune into every episode, but they tune in and they give their feedback. And I think that's one of the most valuable things as well. And, and then secondly, is also the kind of topics that you discuss. I think long-term, like creating and putting out the content, it's very important that you know that in three years' time, a topic that we've discussed and we didn't even realize like, oh yeah, we did that episode can go well viral or can be fueled to thousands of people without us knowing about it. And that's something you're seeing in TikTok as well as one of the trends, like older songs, like that were published like two years ago, all of a sudden they become number one in the bill in the charts in 2021, because somebody picked up a nugget and was like, Hey, this is really valuable. Cuts it out, takes out the important bit, puts it on a platform. Everybody hears it. And then you kind of start going back to the source. And I think that's one of the things that people don't realize is like, if it's a certain quality, and I think we've at now are at a point that this podcast has a certain quality and we're not allowing ourselves that it can go lower than that. It means that there's always kind of a conversation going that's valuable for somebody. And that's more than enough. I mean, there's so many, there's so much content that really has limited value or no value, even content that I put out. And then at a certain point, you start realizing like, oh, wow, this is a nugget of a podcast because this podcast could be like for an hour and 50 minutes of it could be complete crap. Yeah. You just did one quote. But there, there's just one quote in there, which makes people just go and listen to the full episode because they're looking for that one quote. And of course, if it's bad, people are just going to skip through it and are like, okay, that quote was just good and the rest, the rest is rubbish. But once you get that one quote and people start realizing, oh, you discussed how we make gifts. Oh, you discussed how we go into the meta first. Oh, you had the guest on that spoke very much about a certain topic. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is interesting. And then you start really seeing which episodes, because I think we're not seeing that enough yet. And that's something that I'm looking forward to see out of the data. I want to know at a certain point after a year, I want to know like, okay, but what episode really spiked? That mm -hmm. there was somebody listening to this episode and said like, okay, I have to share this episode with other people. So that's something that I'm looking forward to because with the light, I think it's just a general audience who is available at that moment who's captivated enough to stay and listen to us for an hour. But like with the re-listens, with the platforms like Spotify, like on the website, that will be interesting to see like, okay, this episode really went off and people really enjoyed this. So we'll see how analytics develop over the years, but you mentioned the keyword there for this episode, metaverse. And I see some people commenting already, Gregory asked, what's up with the watermelon slice? And that Rajiv just tuned in with a watermelon as well. So I, I, I wanna, I think this is a good entry point. I think there's two things we want to specifically cover tonight is the metaverse and specifically Facebook's rebranding to meta and how it is or isn't connected to each other. Okay. But, but before we do that, can we jump into the watermelon stuff? Because I want to know how all these people are catching on to the watermelon stuff. Because you must have done something that they're talking about that. Oh, before we went live, so we have to put in a description, right? So 
at uh, Facebook uh, naturally. So I just put the watermelon as a description. And Gregory picked it up. Rajiv saw it as well. He commented with that. And this is kind of, it's being replicated unintentionally. It wasn't my intention that it would be replicated in the comments, but it's being replicated. So to give a short story about the watermelon and how this is connected to the metaverse and to the NFT space we're kind of so interested in now, this watermelon emoji became kind of a meme in one of the NFT projects we're in. So the day the Discord went live and the, before the first live stage, before the announcement, there was one community member in that Discord that was commenting watermelons on every post, social media and everything. And every time someone would ask him, what does the watermelon mean? He would put a fake uh, descriptive answer, right? Yeah, the watermelon is, you know, the seed to grow or something or something very elaborate. And the community caught on. And right before the first live stage, there were already watermelon memes in the whole discourse. People were reacting with watermelons. So it took a life of its own. And it kind of became an identity of that project that even as the project went on during the launch, the, the impact theory founders key, the founder actually took ownership of that community created meme and implemented in it in the project as, you know, a contribution from the community created from the community and to show the power that a community can have. So the watermelon is. And the description he has as the, as the icon is, you know, if you know, you know, you are there day one, it's like called secret. I call it a cult, but kind of a rite of passage or, you know, a, a special. It's kind of a cult. It's kind of a cult thing. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the, the story of the watermelon and kind of to illustrate that, you know, so you can start something very seemingly insignificant and it can catch on with uh, by a true community. And then you followed up that story, finding a watermelon NFT on the high, high blockchain. Yeah. So I want to quickly jump into that. So I found this awesome NFT and it's a, it's a watermelon NFT. So I decided to purchase a bunch of those. I think they're 55 editions. And I just went out and, and got me some just because I thought like, yeah, this should be something that would be fun to talk about at a, at a certain point. So yes, we might do a giveaway in the future. Like when this is really taking off, I might give away one of these watermelon NFTs just because I just think it's, it's fun, fun to do as well. I hope that clarifies where the watermelon comes from. And so feel free to keep using it. It's kind of become one of my default emojis to react. <laughs> Un, un, unbeknownst, you know? So yeah, but speaking of that, we've talked about watermelons, NFTs. We've had several episodes with NFTs actually at the social media conference, social media on the blockchain and the future of artwork, two sessions I was really looking forward to. And that's kind of really hot right now, that topic. And what's commonly connected to that is the term metaverse meta and the virtual world. So 
care to take a give your take on how you see the metaverse at this point based on you know available data i'm gonna recite something and if you know where it's from feel free to tune in especially if you're watching this live you can say it in the comments if you're listening to the recording of this on your streaming platform of choice then i want you just to think if if this sounds familiar so i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm just gonna say a couple of lines. Yes? So it's a wonder man can eat at all when things are big that should be small. Who can tell what magic spells will be doing this for us? And I'm giving all my love to this world. Only to be told, I can see, I can hear, I can breathe. No war will we be and nothing's going to change the way we live. Cause we can always take but never give. And now that, that things are changing for the worse, see it's a crazy world we're living in. And I just can't see that half of us immersed in sin is all we have to give these futures made of virtual insanity that always seems to be governed by this love we have for useless twisting our new technology. Oh, there is no sound, for we all live underground. And thinking what a mess we're in, hard to know where to begin. If I could slip the sticky ties that earthly man has made, and now every mother can choose the color of her child. That's not nature's way. And I can go on, but I'm not sure if, if people recognize these words and, and where they're from. I actually do not, but Gregory does. He already mentioned it. Virtual Insanity. Virtual Insanity is, is one of my favorite songs by Jamiroquai. And I mean, we're talking like when I was, was a youngster, when I was really, because this is a song out of the nineties, 1969, 96 and Virtual Insanity. Like I listened to these lyrics and I, I purposely didn't speak it out in the tone that he sings it in. Futures, beta. Virtual insanity and the, when you listen back to these lyrics and you start to think like, wait, there is indeed virtual insa insanity and that the, the speed of the way things are changing, like technology wise is not matching with where we are as, as a society. And I think that's one of the main concerns is that for me, it's like, we're not even fixing the problems, which are really the core of our world that we live in, like in real life. We're just accelerating growth on other places without addressing the issues that we have in real life. And at a certain point, this, it, it's, and there's going to be a pushback. Like you can't just completely ignore real life and just go into this virtual rabbit hole. So that's one of the things that, that I'm, I'm mostly concerned with. And the second thing is, I think it's about 15 to 18 years ago for some, maybe even 20. There was this thing called Second Life. And I don't know if you know Second Life. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I can't really place it. So Second Life was kind of, for me, the, the kind of the sort of kind of this fake, kind of augmented virtual reality kind of stuff. And I'm really trying to figure out like how that's connected to the metaverse as well, because that's kind of feels like 
the part of the metaverse that I'm not interested in and I don't really believe it because I think you're going to explain what metaverse is meant, like define it a little better for us. But for me, metaverse is more about the, 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 the revolution, the technological and informational digital revolution instead of the, the way somebody like Mark Zuckerberg approaches it or like people that are really an AR and VR approach it. I looked it up real quick, saw some images. So it kind of looks like a, you know, virtual, like a video game, uh, kind of San Andreas type like. But coming back to that, I think metaverse as a term is still very like new and it's, if you break it down into its core components, it's like, you know, the meta and first, first is like kind of word, universe, etc. So I've been familiar with these two individual words separately and meta for me, usually if you look at metadata, it's usually self-reflecting, reflecting to itself. So if you talk about metadata in programming software, it's the data about the data or it's the, you know, the, the sound about the sound in, in that sense. And it's self-descriptive. And if you look at it from a gaming perspective, usually in competitive gaming, they talk about the current meta. So the, the current meta means the current combination of things that are popular or, you know, that the best a best in slot, what's the current meta to play. So you usually optimize for that. And if you bring it to a bigger perspective and in, in the way I think it's being used now, it's data about data. So the world about the world, virtual world, but within data. So I think that's how I see it now. And we'll, we'll go to what Facebook's rebranding could mean uh, in a bit later, but yeah, that's how I see it. And with the rise of NFT's virtual world, it kind of took a life of its own as a digital representation of the physical world, like what you have with NFTs, but not just objects and ownership, but an actual world, augmented world. You can buy digital land now and all these separate objects, like things you could buy, land you can buy, is interconnected to each other through data. And that's how I see that metaverse. So here's, I, I have a very positive connotation to it, but also a very negative connotation. So here's the worry, worry for me with the metaverse. What I'm worried about is that as things get overvalued, as kind of, it's kind of this situation where it's a game. Yeah. And I, I'm not even, I don't even want to go into value yet, but, no, just... but, but we're talking here about it, something being a game. We, first, first people have to understand that the problem with the metaverse is that it's not real life. So if you can first in a, a reality, which is a virtual reality, basically that isn't real life. You have to understand that when you meet up with people in real life, they really don't care. That's, that's one of the main first things, like not everybody's into it. And everybody is in real life. You can't escape real life. Well, you can escape real life, but I mean, <laughs> you can't really. So I think that's very important that, 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 and I think I'm worried about that in the space where something is a game, like you can be very successful in the game, but and in real life, you are going through real struggles and 
And the, the, the difference between a game and real life is in a game, you can always reboot. I mean, you, there are things like health. There are things like health and those things, but it's not the same kind of health in a game. You can be kicked out of a certain game in virtual reality, but you can jump into a different game if you want to. In real life, when you're dead, you're dead. Like, if we're talking really from a health perspective. So I think that's one of the... the Speaking of health, I just want to interject real quick. I'm not sure in what section of the Facebook connected to us, but at some point, I think Mark said, if you die in the metaverse, uh, you die in the real world. And then the internet went crazy. They even made memes about it. Yeah, because it's not... It's So I'm worried. No, I'm really worried because basically a lot of people that will jump into this space have more belief in the metaphors than in real life. And I think if you're like a world leader, if you're like a politician, if you're like somebody who basically from the perception of why you joined into that space have decided you want to make the world a better place, this is kind of the most hard, the harshest feedback you can get as a world leader that people are saying like, you're a world leader, but we think a virtual space is better than real life. And we're escaping real life because this real life, the world that we live in is so terrible that very, we rather be in a virtual space because that's how terrible you've made life for us on earth. I think that's something that's really, really grossly underrated that people will enjoy the game of virtual life because they don't want to play the game of real life anymore. And I just want to quickly jump into why I bring this up is because of the tweet that went out from the World Food Program and the response from Elon Musk. Oh, the World yeah. Food Program I saw that it. like 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could end world hunger. And Elon Musk was like, okay, checkmate. You give me the real down-to-earth numbers on how you're going to spend my money. And I'm going to give you that money if you can prove to me how you're going to end, out, end world hunger. Because Elon Musk knows as well how these kind of programs go. Because you donate and like the biggest portion of the donation doesn't actually go to the people that need help the most. And, and that that's exactly where it's wrong. And Elon is not accusing them of doing something wrong. He's just saying like, prove to me that you're really about changing the world. And that yeah, transparent the world. And I will give you that money. I will just sell off my Tesla stock and we'll give you the money. So I think there's where my, my biggest concern lies. And then I'll get into the the positive in the moment. Yeah, a motive I was about to mention this as well. If, if you want a visual example uh, in pop culture, I think Ready Player One is a good starting reference to get an idea of what to think about the metaverse if our fake descriptions were too out there for you. So I, it's, a, it's a fun movie. I really enjoyed it, but it just shows how a future dystopian virtual world could end up looking like. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I did want to add one more thing. You mentioning that tweet from Elon Musk. I, I think you can see how now the community also goes into it. He replied to that, but then the community on Twitter even went further, but oh, this nonprofit reads one and a half times more than they're telling, talking about Elon and nothing still happened. So then they're going to start doing research, et cetera, et cetera. 
And to bring that contrast into perspective, this week is a very interesting week, I think, first week of November, because even as we speak now, there's various things happening around the world. And to show that contrast that you mentioned, like the real world and the virtual world, right now you have the UN COP26 happening in Glasgow, where you know, world leaders come together, talk about climate change, the Paris Agreement. Parallel to that, you have Dubai conference where countries go to show off their, that's a longer project, six months, to show off their countries and, you know, tourism and actually doing business, etc. But then you have the metaverse world, like the biggest conference in NFT land, in crypto land, just started today, New York, New York City. Yeah. NFT NYC, and we actually have people from Suriname there right now. Yeah, I, I saw activities, uh, yeah. so yeah. And what's interesting, like, you got the world's most influential business, some of the world's most influential business people at that event as well. Like Gary V spoke there, people, renowned digital artists, Thomas there, Quentin Tarantino, popular movie director. You want to do the quick plug? On, on Quentin Tarantino's NFTs, what he's going to do? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I remember now. Yeah. I think he's going to NFT one of his scripts that has never been released. That's, you know, in his desk somewhere. Only one person saw it. And he's going to NFT those over time, like in, in different chapters or pages to the public. And, and deleted scenes from Pulp Fiction. Also, yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy. But back to the point you were making about all these major events happening at this. Yeah, so it, it just shows that there is, I, I wouldn't call it disconnect, but there are things happening in parallel and people are looking for alternatives. I, I wouldn't say looking for altern alternatives, but they are creating their own path, so to speak. And, and I don't really want to go too deep into, you know, the politics and, you know, non-profit, what's good, what's not. But little just to illustrate, like, there's things happening, but you got to look where you want to shift your attention and what really matters to you. Because if I go back four years ago, I was actually at the COP23 and this is kind of where they try to bridge the two worlds. I was there for the Hack for Climate Hackathon. And crypto was very new and basically two very disconnected subjects. They were bringing people together to see how can you actually use, you know, blockchain technology to maybe battle climate change. And everyone was new to this space, but there's some interesting ideas that came out of it, like supply chain, something like a whole spin-off, supply chain solutions, etc. AI tracking of deforestation, but how it actually got developed further. That's still, that's question number two. But yeah, I, I just wanted to highlight that. It brings an, it brings an interesting topic. And I think one of the things that gets unrelated is the creative behind it, because you're talking about two different things and technology on one hand and real life in the second, and you have to bridge, like you said, you have to bridge those. And it's not really easy for people that are very well aware how the, the real world works. Sometimes they can't make the switch to the digital or to the meta and the other way around as well. So I think that that's a positive thing. I think is there's so much space to grow. 
there's so much, there are so many options that we're not aware that we can use and it can really change people's lives. Speaking of options, yeah, you have these world problems, but people have personal economic problems as well. And actually this digital world, especially for creators, opens up countless possibilities on how they can compete and participate in a world economy in, in that sense. I, I'm going to go real meta and I'm using quotation marks for the people listening in. So, so what people don't really understand on why the metaverse is important is it removes, removes the barriers. So you showed me like uh, an, an NFT project that launched and I looked at it and I was upset. I was immediately upset because it said U.S. citizens only. So these are kind of the things that, that when you're talking about decentralization, when you talk about going really meta, going to like creating opportunities, these are like big blocks because one of the things that is being underestimated from a, in real life perspective is the, the geopolitical politics. So the geopolitics, which is like big, like only the big nations count. Only the big nations get the, the media attention that they deserve. Like you have like, uh, and basically this is like real urban regime theory, which I get taught, I got taught at university level, master's level, because you have the, you have the center and the periphery and kind of the center is where everything is decided, where everything happens. So when we talk of the center of world economics, there are certain cities in the world that matter more than the rest of the world, because those are the cities with economic power and they kind of decide what happens. And then you have the periphery, which is everything outside of that. And if you're in the periphery, you just don't have the options that the center has. So those are kind of things that you're bound by. So you're bound by your, your geolocation. Whereas with a metaphors, you still have the power struggle. That's something people, they're like, yeah, this is going to be decentralized and blockchain and everything's crypto is decentralized. It's just not as centralized, but it's still centralized. There's still people in power. There's still people that can put you out if they want to put you out. And if the risk is big enough and they see you as a threat, they will try to move you out because, sorry, that's how the space is. But luckily, there are more people that are willing to help others. So what is kind of happening is that if you look back at the internet, the history of the internet, and if you understand that in the early 90s, different nations were pushing towards having their own internet. And you had, the U.S. was building their own information superhighway. And the Germans were building the Infobahn. And all these separate countries were building their own internet. And it took one guy, a British guy, Tim Berners-Lee, who was working for CERN in Switzerland, who happened to be a geopolitical neutral giant, as that's kind of how I see Switzerland, where they said, like, we're going to build the World Wide Web. And the World Wide Web is going to have one code one coding system and it's going to be the same for everyone in the world and every one in the world can access the internet just imagine if that wasn't there just imagine if tim Dial never built the world wide web that basically our government would decide for us whether or not we would be able to access a certain website or whether we'd be able to find out a certain knowledge which in some countries in the world is actually the case so yeah. just 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 take this North Korea. Just, just think this, this, this information and understand that like it could have, it, it almost was the case that our government would decide for us which in the websites we were allowed to visit, which content we were allowed to consume. If you understand that, then 
it brings you to a better understanding of how important the metaphors is, where these kind of geopolitical borders are removed. Like somebody from India and somebody from China and somebody from Europe and somebody from North America and somebody from South America or the Caribbean, they can converse with one another. They can have transactions with one another without being a boundary. And I think this is very interesting because in my studies, I got a lot of globalization theory and I always looked at these globalization theories and like at the opportunities and I was like, yeah, but you guys don't understand. I have a Surinamese passport. I know the story of me wanting to go to the UK. I wanted to go to Newcastle. I couldn't go to Newcastle because I couldn't get a visa in fact. I wanted to go to Dubai. I stayed at the airport at Schiphol in the Netherlands because I couldn't fly to Dubai because the group that had organized the trip, I asked them, do I need a visa? And the traveling agency just told them, yeah, nobody needs a visa. But I, with a Sudanese passport, actually didn't need a visa. So I couldn't go to Dubai. I've experienced in Germany at the customs that the, cost, the person from the customs almost tore apart my passport because we were living in the 2000s and I still had a handwritten passport, Sudanese passport. So he didn't know what to do with it. I had a situation where I was at the border of Russia where the whole bus had to wait half an hour for me because I was being questioned by customs and they wouldn't let me through because it was the first time the lady had seen a Caribbean passport. So once you understand that, you look at the whole globalization theories that you get taught on a scientific level in, in, at university and you're like, yeah, it's nice as Westerners talking about globalization because you with your passport, if you have a Dutch passport or American passport, you can get any, almost anywhere in the world you can get in without a visa. You can get in, but I can't. If I come from a developing country, there are these borders. Everywhere I look, there are borders, borders, borders. And kind of the metaphors is kind of the way that's taking that away. First, the internet took away the opportunity for information that basically everybody in the world is able to find the information for themselves. And it's not like, oh, this information is not available for you. It's disclosed and there's only a elite group of people that can actually find this information. And then you look at a metaphors where kind of everything from transactions, from economic transactions, everything becomes possible for everybody in the world. And, and then you're going towards what is fear, fear, like is it fear for everybody to have this opportunity? Yes, it is. And you don't need the geopolitical borders because your president is a terrorist or a criminal in the eyes of the presidents of certain other countries. So that's the reason why you as a citizen, citizen of that country are not allowed to go into the other country. And that is perfectly removed now. So that's my rant for today. No, I, I think that that's definitely some food for thought that Rajiv says, thanks for sharing those experiences. And yeah, I can definitely see how those borders can limit people. And I think what's also needed, uh, if you look at locally, we know about these certain things because we've been exposed outside. We've experienced firsthand, like what it's like, the, the process of getting a visa. I, I'm in the process of, you know, getting my visa renewal so we can travel next year. But I have a friend in Guatemala who told me like, they can apply for visas, US visas only in 2023. So 
these borders, yeah, it, it sucks. It, it sucks sometimes. Yeah, it's a geopolitical, it's just a geopolitical, and it's, it's hard, man. Like, people get rejected. Like, Surinamese people get rejected for a visa in the U.S. or in the Netherlands because the governments are too concerned with them going there and staying and not coming back. Like, Surinamese but, people who have bank accounts in the Netherlands, the banks are telling them, you can no longer have a bank account with us. You have to live in the Netherlands. Like, these things are insane. It's just to catch certain people that they feel are doing things against the law. And it's kind of incriminating others while we're at it. And that's why I feel like these opportunities are there and people should actively look for these opp opportunities, you know, look at what, you know, digital art is. And the internet's there now, but I think people are still quite unaware. And the, the common thread I still see is for the people actually trying investing, trying the crypto space. The first thing is always, you know, how do I get my money here? And we talked about this before, but that mind shift needs to happen in my opinion. Like it isn't a matter of asking, how do I get my money here? How can I use this money alternatively to do other stuff, to invest in something in China, to invest in something in New Zealand, to sell an art piece somewhere in Russia from here. And this ties into the metaverse and to how this brings opportunity for everyone. And at a conference, we had the session, you know, the future of art. And today I followed the session. They, they broadcasted it on Twitter during NFT NYC with Quentin Tarantino and a whole panel on, they, they were kind of an extension of the future of art, but entertainment as a whole. You mentioned he has the NFT. And you also talked about, you know, the, the power cities. If you look at New York, NFT NYC is in New York. The power shift that happens there in a business and economic sense is huge. And if you don't realize this, I think today, yesterday to today, there was NFT NYC takeover. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Times Square, where you have all these buildings, all these LEDs. Imagine standing there and every direction you look was an NFT on all the screens, promotion for NFTs. The walls were graffiti with board, uh, board APX and cool cats. So this is a shift in culture in, you know, people are connecting that have never seen each other before. People that are anonymous online on Twitter kind of took the identity of their NFT you had G-Money, who actually, they overlaid his crypto punk over his face in the video because that is his identity, basically. Just goes to show how that's kind of, you know, removing borders. And it's still very infant. That's the beauty of it. It's a still very new space. So I think now it's, you know, I actually, anytime now it's opportunity to learn. There might be a crash coming, who knows, but that's the best time to learn, to understand how the systems work. I, I feel that in the... To understand right. how the culture shift works. I agree totally. So let's talk a little bit about the emphasis that Mark Zuckerberg put on Meta. Because I feel Mark is looking a little bit different at it. And I also think from a value proposition kind of business 
use case, he really uh, has connected it to arto artificial intelligence and virtual reality, which is kind of augmented reality and virtual reality. I'm sorry about that. Okay. Uh, well, one thing, one thing I do want to say about Mark is timing. His timing with the announcement could not have been better from a business branding perspective. I think he has been waiting on this. So, oh, here's my hot thing. Because I think the acquisition of Oculus, I don't know the exact year, when they started going into virtual and reality. It was, was way too early. But it was a setup. It was. And it's still a setup. It, it's, a, it's, I think. I think people, I, I posted this on Facebook like last, last week or, or a couple of days ago that people have to understand that Mark Zuckerberg with his wife started an initiative, used that yeah, initiative the, the, the Chan by the right? Yeah. So the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, they actually bought Meta as a, as a, as an academic company. And now they're using the name of the company that they bought four years ago as the new name of the mega company and discontinuing that academic company that they bought. So you have to imagine like the, all the intellectual property. So I was, when they announced Meta, I was like, okay, but how are they doing this? They, there must be companies called Meta at the moment that are just waiting for lawsuits for intellectual property. And then when I researched it, I realized that this guy, four years ago already purchased a company called Meta so that he didn't have any issues now with transforming the name because legally he already has everything in place for four years to make the switch. I mean, just, just from a, this is, and I like to play chess more and more now, and I'm more of a speed player. So I play blitz, which is five minutes, but these are like real, real chess moves, like real life chess moves where kind of acquisitions are happening. I mean, like some acquisitions are like in the heat of the moment. It looks random. But these are like acquisitions which are planned so far ahead that most of us are like, wait a minute, we, we don't even realize how far ahead of time these things get, get done. And, and it, it just blew my mind that four years ago, Mark Zuckerberg already purchased a company called Meta. And now is using that company's name to make the transformation complete, to change the Facebook name to Meta. And I think this is why it's important to know that. And it's important to know because Google already changed their name from Google yeah, to Alphabet. The main platforms in China, the company that owns those is not called WeChat, but it's called Tencent. So it's mm -hmm. already the company, which is the corporate. Sorry, identity and Tencent owns like the three biggest or three of the four biggest social platforms in China. And then you have SoftBank in Japan, ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok. So the owner of TikTok, the platform has a different name than the actual platform. And Facebook drastically needed that change to have like the company, the, the, the corporation Facebook having a different name from the platform Facebook because people couldn't make the distinction. So this is really an, an interesting move, but a move that they felt was necessarily a long time. And like you said, the timing, like the metaphors kind of is, is on a full hype train. 
And they just jumped in and were like, yeah, we knew that Meta was going to be a thing in 2017. We just, we just didn't tell you. We just waited four years to kind of let everybody hype in and then we're going to change our name. I mean, the, 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 the strategy, the long left, the long term thinking about that is, it just blows my mind. I, I, I don't feel like I'm fully cro- comprehending it already. No, I, I get what you mean. And especially that from a corporation standpoint, interconnecting all their businesses and services, you know, Facebook, Instagram, but especially the Oculus that they acquired and developed because they even dropped the complete Oculus brand. It's called Meta Quest now. So if, if you think of it from a gaming perspective, I think they also had, I think they're having a partnership with GTA, uh, Grand Theft Auto as well, to kind of blend that world together and going to that vision of creating that virtual world. I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but coming from a central superpower versus the decentralized meta first created in the crypto space right now, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but there's going to be friction there. So I think that there's two things that we have to take in consideration. One is you have to understand that even though this is a big change and a lot, a lot of companies and people in the metaverse will benefit from Facebook jumping the bandwagon are strategically already being there. So it's, it's not a one way street, but you also have to realize that for many, especially in the decentralized world. Facebook becoming meta is like, it's the common centralized enemy, yeah. you know? So, it, so it's I, the rise of the, the one mind or yeah. whatever so you it's call kind it. Of this, this is this, this common, common enemy number one. That's kind of how you can view it. So, so it's very important to know that. And the second thing that, and this is more from a personal note, because I think it's personally, I don't believe in it. I think the Oculus brand but specifically more the space of that virtual reality. I don't really think people are in that virtual reality interest space already. No, not yet. Virtual reality is still years away from kind of breaking through. And where you could see this was Google Glass. I think when the the picture they painted is maybe 10, 15 years projection, but getting people used to the interactions, being able to, you know, swipe and do a purchase online, being able to sell in their ecosystem with their rules. It's kind of taking the web 2.0 rules where they were the social media giant. They're trying to transfer that into the, let's call it now meta semi-web 3.0 world. And I listened to Tim Ferriss's latest podcast. He had Naval on as well and Chris Dixon. And there, there's a quote here. You mentioned the, the, the villain part. And I think this is a very appropriate quote that Naval had here. And he says, any regulator that stops the next generation of artists, musicians, and gamers and game developers from owning their own platform, their work, is going to go into the wastebasket history of as a villain. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very powerful because like, the ownership of, you know, creators BA on a centralized platform like Facebook is gonna 
create friction because don't underestimate the kill. I mean, I, I'm no, not sure. The power of ownership. I, I'm not sure like traditional companies are aware of these waves that are approaching them. Like these are like real waves of technology innovations and, and decentralized ownership that are just going to hit really big companies. And like, it's interesting to see people like, like Tom from Impact Theory and, and Gary Vaynerchuk, who like at a really early age are, are, are really jumping in, like jumping deep into the mud to be like, okay, we're, we're just they're going all in. They are they're, going all in. They're just going and going like, have on these, on, on these innovations. And you're like, okay, respect to you for, for doing that. But there are also companies that 20 years from now, they, they're going to just going to be, you're going to be like, what happened to us? And I think one of the biggest examples is one of the biggest, most renowned companies that we know for the past decades decided to call it quits and decided like this, this is done. The business is done. And then one of my questions was like, what did they try to do to innovate their experience? And then somebody told me like, yeah, but what could they do? And that's when I realized like people are so, so stuck in the, the core concept, like core products and core services that you offer that because it worked for decades, they're not used to when this shift comes. Like for instance, COVID comes around, they're not quick on their feet to come up with different products and services that are more up to date and better feed like the needs of, of the customers. For instance, the, the products and the services that Ineffable sold, like when we started out five years ago, they completely differ from what we're delivering now. Like the services that we're offering our clients now in 2017, I didn't know those things existed or I've heard about them but they were not in the space as we are now. And we're now getting deals of things that we're, of course, there are certain things that we've done through the years. And I can use 10 years of experience to say like, this is how it's done, but there are also, also new products and services that we're like, wait a minute. And we're discussing this already for the conference. Like, Hey, we do need NFTs. We need, we need digital intangibles. Like we now have a goodie bag, which was stuck this year for the conference. But we need that virtual badge as well that people on their LinkedIn profile can say like, Hey, I attended social, the social media company. Boaps. I send it to you. <laughs> yeah, but, but, I mean, it came way too early, but like for next year, that's something that we need to have because it's kind of the, the next step. We talked about Instagram. Yeah. People get, thought, need to get used to it slowly. Yeah. We talked about Instagram that was basically a concept where I wanted to integrate real life with, with the digital space where we started off saying like, let's put like five Instagram posts per artist or per photographer on a canvas and just do an exhibition and have people actually buy the artwork. So people were actually buying Instagram posts to physical art. And I thought that was really revolutionary. I mean, we started out when when Instagram posts were still yeah. square, you could square only square, you could only post square Instagram posts. That's how we started out. So year one, everybody had these square canvases. And then all of a sudden in year two, three, things started to shift and change because Instagram started allowing different shapes and sizes. 
And now we have to seriously consider like, okay, we're going to actually mint the exhibition and it's got to be a digital exhibition as well, where people can actually purchase the digital version of that artwork, which is really an interesting space because this is also something which mentioned, I mentioned with in the future of art. Traditional art, a lot of people cannot afford it. But digital art, on the other hand, and like some people don't buy physical art, even if they like the art piece, because they don't have anywhere to hang it. They don't have like a showcase for it or a place at home or where they can actually hang it that it, it, it serves as a certain value. Whereas with a digital one, aside okay. from it having it on the internet and using it as, like you said, for your avatar or for your profile, it's also the opportunity to buy it cheaper because you can have more editions of it minted and more additions having been authentic. So that's how I view it, at least for now. On the subject of art, let us close it off with the, with the art subject. So the common, I guess, argument is, why would I pay for something digital, a digital ownership? It's just a JPEG. That's the most common argument there is now. And I'll, I'll start with my take first, and, and then you can share your thoughts. So the common argument is, you know, why not, you know, right click it, save it as a JPEG, put it as my profile picture. Yay, I have this ape, I have this CryptoPunk or whatever profile picture project you take now, or just uh, a photo of something. One, I think that is a good, if people copy it, it's like, you know, they want to be part of it. So they copy it, share it, and that is good for the creator because that's basically free marketing. But people underestimate the sense of ownership that collectors seek of, you know, owning the original piece and how much they value. If you've reflected back to traditional art, there's two parts to this. You have people who actually value the art as a sentimental piece, but other uh, on the flip side, as a investment piece, as a way to hedge their network. Coming back to the digital NFT, you have the artsy side. So if you're purely buying it for art, I would say, if you like it, buy it. If you don't, you know, it's not for you. But adding the meta layer to it, the metadata layer, why I think digital art or digital NFTs, digital ownership has additional value is because of the metadata that's associated with that piece. And that is where I think Gary and Tom are playing their cards very well. And aside from Gary and Tom, actually the crypto punk and board ape community also have an edge in that because you're not just, oh, you just, you're, you don't just own that piece. You're part of a closed exclusive community of billionaires, millionaires, influential people. It's kind of a VIP pass to that community. What happened during NFT NYC with Bort Ape Yacht Club, they actually rented a yacht 
and invited everyone who had a Port Ipiak to that party. They had jerseys for sale exclusively for those people. And imagine how other people would feel not belonging to that club. And that kind of, you know, I'd say raises or inflates the value, perceived value. And that's if you look at it from an economic standpoint. But then the other part of the metadata is also the utility that's attached to it. As you said, you could buy this piece now and after you can, every year you can have dinner with the artist or something, or you could have front row seats at the NBA games, et cetera, if you collect a certain part of it. So that is what makes the digital piece, the NFT, aside from the JPEG value, give it additional utility and value. And if that doesn't work out, if you buy it because you like it, at the end of the day, you'll end up with a very cool JPEG that you can say you yeah, own it. that you can say I own it. So I quickly want to jump on the utility part because I think that's underestimated. For me, the utility part, it's what's going to make and break certain projects. It's, it's quite simple. If you don't, if the, if the project doesn't have utility, I almost even don't mind looking at it because it's like, okay, I really have to love something uh, before I would want to own something like that. So I think the utility part is, is the most important. But I think from a more traditional perspective, this is also just about branding. Like it's how good is the brand? And I think people underestimate that because a lot of these, and, and people don't take the credit because I spoke with a lot of NFT collectors because I wanted a couple of NFT collectors for the social media conference. And they were all like, yeah, but we're just collectors. We don't know Jack, you know, what comes behind it about social media, but I feel like they're completely underrating themselves because these people are so social media savvy. They know how to build a brand. They know how to understand, like to get loyalty and to get like kind of this, this, this group, the, the inner circle that you're kind of describing, the end crowd that you're describing from, from these communities. I think for the last two years, I decided to go a different route with my opening keynote this year. But for the past couple of years, I've always been big on tribes and Nafal, you mentioned Nafal is one of the people also that mentioned there will be tribes. There's like the big, big space where everybody's at. And then you have different tribes with certain interests. And I think it's a very much a branding thing. Like. I mean, yeah, sure. Like in the nineties, early two thousands, all of a sudden it was really popular to wear Nikes. To have Nike, like the Nike brand became really important and still people were buying the Chinese knockoffs or the, the knockoffs that were made. And for the people that bought the knockoffs, they just either didn't want to pay the money or didn't have the money. So it's fine that they were wearing knockoffs because Nike knockoffs, because for them, it felt like enough, like. We, we know we don't belong, but we still feel kind of that we belong because we're wearing Nikes and even though they're fakes, we don't mind. Whereas the people that really wanted to wear them because they wanted to be part of the community, they bought the actual Nikes for a much, much larger price. And then you also have people that kind of wait to buy them at the cheapest option and then still say like, but yeah, I own, I don't own this brand, even though you got it for much cheaper than most people did. Whereas some people stand in line in front of an Apple store to get the latest iPhone at the highest possible price. And you're like, okay, that's a lot of money to spend for a phone, but they're part of that tribe. They believe in that brand. And I think 
the branding aspect is also underrated because the projects that you've just mentioned, whether it's Gary, Tom, or the board ape or the, the cool cats, these are, are like crypto punks. These are like really established brands. And like, there are a lot of NFT projects that want to be put in the same category or in the same room as those, those bigger brands, but they're blue just chip, blue chips. Yeah. These are the blue chips. They are literally the blue chips of the NFT world. So like you, you want to be there, but it's not like you're going to start an NFT project and right off the bat, people are going to spend tens of thousands of dollars on it. I think that's a very big misconception as well, that people are like, yeah, all the NFTs are going to take off. They're just going to be dumps. If you actually look at the projects that actually take off the people who are behind them, either they're well-renowned artists, developers that have worked on big projects or have media companies, etc., and entering the space with strategy. The community they've already built, the strategies they've already applied in their traditional businesses. And that's why they kind of, you know, succeed. Obviously there can be a one-off one there, you know, that's organically like the memes. I, I don't even want to go into the memes right now. No, because that, that is culture. You get back into the, the, the podcast that we had at Startup Yable, where you have talked about federal entrepreneurs and yep. private entrepreneurs. Basically, that's, that's where you're getting at. When you, when you have the pedigree, it's kind of, you have the leverage, people trust you more, but also you're able to push out a brand that people already believe in. And I mean, it's a big difference between starting an NFT project where you have 2000 NFTs and you have 500 people who are genuinely interested and starting an NFT with a thousand NFTs and you have 50,000 people that are interested. I mean, the scarcity is, is a very big thing. And even with a bigger successful project, you see also see some peaks and valleys. Even with fee friends, like the, the floor now is lower than the floor was a year or sorry, a month ago, but it could just spike or two weeks, two or three weeks from now, or like two or three months from now, you can have a huge spike. Like before May next year, there probably will be another big spike. And that so, there will be also a very, very quick jump down as well. So for the people listening right now, and you are interested in NFTs, in the projects we've mentioned, we don't recommend you, you know, go all in, but I do recommend it worth looking at at least. And first of all, to give you guys some indication of what's coming, because I'm in the discord, I see what's happening. Gary is coming with fee friends 1.5 and 2.0 within the next Q1 and Q2, possibly of 2022. And it's going to be under a thousand dollars equivalent of ETH. So if you want, you can use these six months to prepare for that. If that is something that interests you. Tom's project impact. Key theory, and these are pro I'm mentioning these projects because are projects I personally looked into, so I also have a stake in them. But if it goes to nothing, yeah, goes to nothing. If it goes up, woohoo, we win. Tom's project still his launch was last week, two weeks ago, right before the conference. There are still several keys available on his website 
to mint his NFT. And it's been sitting there for a week now. His first big project that's on the roadmap for his huge pro NFT project is coming in the next two weeks. And probably that is when FOMO, he's going to start kicking in FOMO and people like, Hey, it's been sitting there for two weeks. We're launching now and everybody might want to go into that. So that's a possibility. We've mentioned Quentin Tarantino's NFT project that's com probably coming in the next six months. If you're a Tim Ferriss fan, I listen to his podcast. He's probably going to launch a project in next two weeks as well, and not next two weeks, next two quarters as well in 2022. So I'm looking at these, these are established brands that I look up to, that I follow, you know, examples of on how they do business branding, investment strategies. And it isn't a random thing I just go into, obviously do your own research, but I'm just giving some indications of where I'm looking at and what I'm preparing for at least, because when that opportunity comes, you want to be prepared. You want to be liquid and not have to, you know. And I'm just gonna say, because and I mean, Diego speaker to the audience that has a little bit more investing, like possibilities, but even with NBA top shot, I think NBA top shot, you can start off at $9 I mean, you, you, you should be able to find a way to have $9. And I think one of the thing, biggest knockoffs is like, how do I get my money there? So I think for me personally, Hive has been a game changer on Hive. You just post and you post content on the blockchain and you get rewarded for it. And I think Jennifer Podcaster said it, said it best. Yeah. But I think Jennifer said it best as well. She said like, listen, I have 40,000 tweets and I got nothing like ROI of value. There's of course value there, but like economic value out of this tweet, there was like not that much, but imagine if you have like 40,000 tweets and for every tweet. You just get 10 cents, 10 US dollar cents. That's already $4,000 just for putting out content. And I think that's one of the things that people underestimate that you can use how to kind of start getting an earning and then use and reinvest the hive that you've earned into the crypto space, because it solves one problem for people like us from Suriname. You don't have to connect a bank account to your crypto. You just use crypto that you've earned and actually use that. I think that's one of the biggest game changers for me as well, because if I wanted to invest a hundred dollars in and be a top shot, I don't look at my bank account and just go like, okay, is there a hive that I can sell off? It's now at $80 cents. I got it when it was like 10, $15 cents. I spent some hive to get XR, to get some XRP transferred to another exchange, get Ethereum there. And then just wire the Ethereum to my Dapper credit to the NBA top shot and do my purchases with that. So basically there's no, it's, it's two separate worlds. Yeah. It's, it's like no the real world of, of kind of separated thing. from the metaverse, the nightverse mm -hmm. that you're in. That's and that's, that's the access point to the wider metaverse. So if you're listening to this and like, this is so far away from me, I don't have anything to invest. If you invest your time, just investing your time will get you there. If you start off with platforms that you earn crypto by posting content. You use that content that you earn 
the, the, the rewards that you earn to actually invest in NFTs or into projects that you believe in. I mean, it's a whole new space opening up. And the thing that we're a little bit short, kind of blindsided by is the short-term need to get revenue. But I think if you use crypto kind of like an alternative, something that if you don't have time to save money, that you save money with crypto, I think that's one of the ways uh, to go. Yeah, uh, my camera just died, so I think this is a good place to close it off. And as you said, it's a good way to save, kind of separate that real, that real world work that you do from that virtual space. And it won't add pressure to like, okay, I need to get by today. Yeah. So that's one way to look at it. But with that being said, we're going to close it off with the usual disclaimer. This is in no means financial advice, your own research. And now you can officially close it out, Diego. Yeah, this was uh, a great recap episode for the past 42 weeks. And we finally explored the space that we're kind of very passionate about now. The, and it's kind of very hype now. So we will continue to look into this space and share stuff we know in future episodes. As usual, this podcast will be uploaded in the coming weekend. We've been behind with one episode, I think, for, re- for releasing, but we should be on schedule again by next week. So with that being said, this was Social Convos. Shanluk, throw us out. This was Social Convos. See you back next week, same place, same time. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.